0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edmund Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: All the better for having watched *Married to the Mob* for the first time last night, Ed. What a mm. what a excellent jewel in in the crown of Jonathan Demi. Bloody love Jonathan Demi. I can't believe it's it's taken me so long to actually see *Married to the Mob*, given that I like to think I'm a bit of a, a Demi head. Crash test Demi. Sorry, I was punning on the on the guy <laughs> there. It's such a unique film because I haven't seen anything that that's is that kind of like slightly magical realist, high stakes, strong female protagonist, as much as I hate that phrase, but she has like her foibles and her motivations and passions, so beautifully shot and rhythmic and comic and still quite like, yeah, it just felt like a real kind of bright, Cheery, but without being kind of sentimental or schlocky. There's a bit of sort of the grotesque to it, which I like somehow, but it still has a real heart to mm. it. So yeah, if you haven't seen Married to the Mob, it's on UK Netflix, folks. Do yourself a favor.
0: Yeah, that was the film that really made me appreciate what a great actress Michelle Pfeiffer is because oh, so until good. then, I, I obviously knew her from Batman Returns, which was one of my favourite films as a child, and yeah is probably responsible for a lot of things for men of my generation mm-hmm. um unlocking, <laughs> unlocking certain feelings but she i i so i liked her in that and i'd seen her in other movies but i think when i was getting into movies was kind of during that period in the late 90s early to mid 2000s where she wasn't working in as many movies or the movies she made didn't tend to get wide releases like the, the only one I could think of during that period that really seemed to make much of an impact was the remake of Hairspray, which is terrific in. Yes. Um, and Stardust,
1: I want to say. Yeah, she is in Stardust. She's in Stardust. Um, yeah, she's um, great in that. Sure.
0: Yes, she's she's wonderful in that. So she was, she's great in both of those movies, but there was so there was that sense that she was having a little bit of a revival that never quite seemed to coalesce. But since then, she's kind of shown up in sort of big-ish movies with some regularity. Uh, which is nice, including in the more recent Marvel movies because uh she plays Evangelina Lee's mum in those movies. Um in the Ant-Man movies. And so for a long time I th- I knew her as Catwoman and I knew that she was someone who was, you know, very, very famous, but I hadn't really seen much of her work or much of her range, but I watched Married to the Mob and the Fabulous Baker Boys in fairly close proximity. I wanna oh. say they probably both came through from Love Film at the same time and I just remember being really blown away by how great she is in both those movies but how different those performances are, how they demand such different things from her and yeah that, that propelled me to kind of check out a lot more of her subsequent work and yeah she's got a fantastic filmography of uh, of interesting varied performances over the course of her career and I think she, even though she's obviously, she's obviously had tremendous success over the course of her career and you know is still working fairly consistently she still feels like someone who's maybe a little bit underrated
1: i completely agree the chemistry that she and matthew modine have in married to the mob like i adore matthew modine like particularly in Mm. this because he seems to be the most placid maniac ever like he's so still on the Mm -hmm. surface and yet there's always something kind of tweaking underneath him and the chemistry that they have absolutely makes that relationship plausible because when you break it down, Married to the Mob goes at such a pace that they don't have a lot of time to establish their relationship, but it's lean. And the thing that struck me watching the credits is that the credits play over a fair few deleted scenes without any audio, like bits that we do not see Mm -hmm. in the film. And I think it's nice because I think Jonathan Demi's like, oh, I kind of want to put them in somewhere. This is well before like DVD extras and and the like, because we see like more scenes between Medine and Pfeiffer on their first date. He seems to have bought her kid wooden dinosaur toy because they had some chat about dinosaurs. And it's developing on that, that kind of like fatherly and, and thoughtful concern. And also, um, uh, Pfeiffer having a chat with her boss in the salon like out of hours and it's amazing that it's like Demi's like there are some nice expressions here but we don't need it for the full story Um, and it manages to avoid some of the tropes that it could fall into quite nicely you know what actually the closest thing that it feels to for me in terms of the majority of its tone is uncut gems
0: Right. I think
1: because there's something kind of like a kind of dark comic crime caper it's not like full blown like spy and don't get me wrong spy is great i'm a big fan of spy but it's not that level of like comedy like there is a grotesque layer to it um but i could talk about mm. married to the mob all day how are you ed
0: yeah i'm good i didn't watch married to the mob unfortunately um i really should get that on blu ray because i uh, yeah that's one of those demi movies that like i said yeah watched years and years ago uh, when I was going through the kind of the, the height of my Demi discovery period, which I think was really kicked off by something wild, which I remember hearing uh, being talked about, about on the uh, battleship pretension uh, podcast like years and years ago. And then describing it made me think, oh, this sounds really interesting. Like I, this sounds so, because at that point I knew like Jonathan Demi is the guy who had done science of the lambs and Philadelphia and, Manchurian candidate. so like the idea of him being a guy who would make this kind of like really fizzy comedy that then halfway through <laughs> turns into something else like was really wild to me
1: mm. so
0: so that was like the film that really kicked off and then you know from there it, like the next steps were like stop making sense and marriage to the mob which I think it should be enough to make anyone a Demi fan for life but yeah for me it's kind of not, not been uh, a huge amount of watching stuff this week, I uh, oh, I started watching the very popular anime Jojo Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, which is something I've been enjoying quite a lot. Mainly because I had no idea what it was about prior to watching it, mm-hmm. and the first episode of it is, by anime standards, very sedate. It's all about charting the lives of these two like kids, one of whom is the son of a kind of a rich guy who's wife had died tragically and the other one is the son of a kind of reprobate criminal who is believed to have helped the, the other father at a point when he was in great difficulty but actually didn't, he was actually trying to rob him but... Um, they kind of like grow up together and it's all about their rivalry and it's this kind of like English pastoral thing and you think oh this seems all very kind of quaint and then the second episode is oh actually by the way in their house is a mask if the mask gets blood on it and you attach it to someone's face it turns them into a vampire and also Jack the Ripper's here (laughs) and it like very quickly escalates to a level of intensity that I was not (laughs) expecting but found very fun because I'd like to say I went into it with no expectations, and the shock of the first episode just being kind of like I don't know, like a, to- a Thomas Hardy <laughs> novel or something, and then the second episode being full on people being torn apart by zombies <laughs> was quite a quite a sight to see. Uh, also, most of the characters are named after uh, classic rock bands and musicians. Uh-huh. So one of the characters, one of the characters, is called uh, I believe. R- uh, Robert Eo Speedwagon which is my, my favourite name for a character ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that's spectacular.
0: So, yeah, so, so that, and also you and I were just talking about how I had watched the first two episodes of Columbo because I got the complete Columbo on DVD because it was going cheap and it seemed like a good thing to kind of like have on while I'm working. And it was, um, really interesting seeing how quickly they kind of got the character figured out because the whole thing with columbo was the character like originated on a anthology show in the 60s where it's played by someone else and then the writers took that character and wrote a play all around him which was staged in the mid 60s and then they adapted that as a tv movie with a peter fork which then ends up being the like the first appearance of the character but he's clean shaven he's got like short hair and he's a little bit too aggressive compared to how people think of Columbo like for the most part he does the whole like you know malpropisms and just not kind of seeming a little bit dense in order to lure people into a false sense of security Mm. but when he when he figures out that one of the people involved in the crime is an accomplice he really kind of like aggressively kind of like starts talking to her about how he's going to like ruin her life and you know how he's going to like get them and all this sort of stuff and it's really strange knowing the character as he would then kind of become and then you know that was in 68 and then they made another pilot three years later and there it's like oh this is like they figured it all out like he's totally this kind of like calm presence who's kind of like bumbling around in the background he's clearly someone who's kind of got a bee in his bonnet about something but isn't showing his hand too much he's very very gentle with pretty much everyone in encounters and it's it was really remarkable seeing just how quickly they figured out that formula and the thing that's really funny about it is that towards the end lee grant who plays the killer in the episode she is talking to Columbo, and she's like she has this whole thing where she talks about all of his little tricks and she lays out basically all of the the basic details of the Columbo character about, you know, him pretending to kind of be dumber than he is and all this sort of stuff. I thought, it's really fascinating. Not only did they figure the character out so quickly, but they were able to have a character articulate it like the second time that Peter Falk had ever played him. Mm. Yeah, so as as people can probably tell, uh, there's no news this week (laughs) because there's lots of news happening and not a lot of it involves film and television at the moment uh, because films are not being made or they're not being released TV shows are being delayed so production is being halted so um, yeah, I think in the coming weeks if there's like a big story that we have to talk about we will definitely put it in the news but I think uh, for the foreseeable future as everyone is kind of on lockdown and quarantined uh, we'll kind of make the news a, a more kind of situational thing uh, in the coming weeks and we'll we'll, uh, try and go into the the main topic uh, a little more quickly or after 12 minutes (laughs) (laughs) as is the case this week Um, but yes, uh, this week uh, our episode is on cinema and I guess TV as well as a a time capsule and um, this was inspired by my viewing a few weeks ago of the Louis Mal film Vanya on 42nd Street which is a movie starring wallace sean and briefly andre gregory uh, reuniting for the second time after they had kind of collaborated with louis Malle on my dinner with andre uh, sort of 10 years earlier in the 1980s this was in the early 90s they made this film and it is a documentation of a theatrical experiment that andre gregory did where he took a bunch of actors Uh, including Wallace Shawn and a young Julianne Moore, and had them perform the Chekhov play Uncle Vanya in the New Amsterdam Theatre on 42nd Street in New York. And the theatre at the time, and they didn't do this for any audiences, except for like a handful of people that they invited to watch it. And the whole idea was they wanted to kind of be given a space in which to perform the play, and to explore it and workshop it to try and like better understand this great work of drama and they decided to film it at one point because otherwise basically no one would ever see the this these great actors doing this great play in this Weird, dilapidated setting. You know, the new Amsterdam Theatre at the time was just in complete disarray. It was this old classical theatre that had kind of fallen to rot, and the glimpses you see of it in the film or of it just like clearly falling apart. And you know, they talk about having how they had very limited space in which they could actually film it because the the floor was so unsteady. So most of the film just takes place in like the orchestra pit <laughs> because that's pretty much the only part of the theatre they were particularly safe in, and what i found very interesting about this is that the new amsterdam theater a few years later was purchased by disney who redid it and it's now where they show the broadway production of aladdin and i just found that to be a really fascinating metaphor in some ways for basically everything that's happened in broadway and most of manhattan over the last like 20 years or so of big corporations coming in like redeveloping it and this Mm. area of new york that if you watch it in older movies, you know movies from the the seventies and eighties, is just the 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 hive of scum and villainy, <laughs> you know, just like full of porno theaters, full of um people just trying to score drugs and all this sort of stuff, and, and it being turned into you know tourist place where you know there's all the neon signs and people are on that weird fan stand that Greta Greta Gerwig walks down in Mistress America, and also like the the opening of the movie is just a series of street scenes of the cast arriving at the theater so you get this like real glimpse of what broadway was immediately before like giuliani comes in and like all of the redevelopment happens so i thought it'd be interesting to talk about this quality that cinema has of as a medium of image and movement and sound of allowing you to capture moments in time and moments in culture and allow people to re-experience them in some way.
1: It's hard not to think of examples that aren't places and cities.
0: Mm -hmm. I think because
1: in terms of dimensions, if time is the fourth one, you know, location, takes up a lot of the others. (laughs) Mm. And I was thinking about, because it's, you know, the two probably most filmed cities in the world are probably New York and Los Angeles, right? Um, mm, yeah. It would be interesting to see if there's actual like data behind that, but that's how I feel. That's what feels sort of right to me. And I was thinking of three films in particular that are sort of between one to three decades apart from each other in LA. And the first one is The Long Goodbye. Um, Elliot Gould. Mm. Um, and I love that film so much, partly because it opens with um, it opens with Philip Marlowe just trying to get the right cat food for his cat because his cat's really mm-hmm. nickety and will be able to tell <laughs> if he's if he's being fobbed off with a different brand and it's just such a lovely tangential character revealing scene setting moment because you know Marlowe will go to the nth if it's something he cares about even if it may seem trivial to anyone else and I'm sure fellow cat owners like myself will relate to that. And The Long Goodbye has this really sort of hazy, sunshine, noir feel to it. And it's quite mm. quiet and deserted. And I love me a, a modern noir. And it worked so well in the 70s. Um, but the way that LA is, it's this kind of... as a As a landscape, it's so... It almost feels like... The Wild West as well, and then a film that is essentially preoccupied with time. Um, Mike Figgis's Time Code, um, mm. two yeah. thousand film, which is four narratives at once that overlap, and the film is split screen throughout uh, with four of them, and it follows like various different characters like in the, within L.A. and seeing it. I think it manages to get across just how many people think that they're the stars of their own lives, (laughs) particularly in LA Mm. and seeing it at the turn of the millennium and this kind of, it's quite an interesting watch I have to say, (laughs) but it is encouraging you to pick who you gravitate towards Um, and the whole script was improvised, but all sort of within a sort of a theme but the script was written or at least the score like the musical score is is written so that's like certain themes come together at certain times Oh, I'm explaining it horribly What find time code <laughs> it's also such an amazing snapshot of time and place because it, it really looks and feels like a film made in the late 90s early 2000s mm-hmm. and that it just captures that, that look and then the final one is 20 years after Time Code, uh, Under the Silver Lake. Oh, yeah. Which uh, David Robert Mitchell's film um, with Andrew Garfield, because I feel that's very similar to The Long Goodbye, but you mm-hmm. can see the same kind of sunshine noir in the same city with the same kind of slightly loosey goosey approach as opposed to something like Inherent Vice, which again mm-hmm. is sort of the same sunshine noir but filmed recently set back in time so yeah that's the kind of melange of things i was thinking in terms of of la Mm. because i think those are the ones where you can see like then and now basically but like across a whole city and how it can become its own character in the same and i always just think of that amazing bit in they came together where Paul Rudd says. It's (laughs) almost like New York was a character in our own story. Sorry if it was actually Amy Poehler who said that. But it's a great line in a great film. Um, (laughs) But it's the changing sort of character of LA and the different lenses that filmmakers have with it as their relationship changes to it. And of course, the big one, I guess, is Mulholland Drive, which I think Mm. is actually, doesn't have an awful lot of, you don't feel like you're in LA a lot of the time because it's such tight locations there's not lots of big sweeping establishing shots there's not a lot of movement throughout like it focuses very much on people and yet that it's the movie title it's the movie title (laughs) it's a is a place in LA Mm. but I think it's really interesting to yeah look at like the same place and particularly with the same genre and how it can look so different
0: Mm. yeah I think also with Mulholland Drive the thing that's interesting is the first half of the movie is it's also an idea of LA to mm. Not spoil the movie for people who haven't seen it. Uh, although it's kind of a hard movie to spoil um, by design. Uh, but yeah, like there, there's a there's a heightened quality to it as well. So there is kind of a difference between what the first half of the movie's vision of LA is versus the second half, in a way that feels really kind of palpable and is really effective. And, and also, as a weird like I guess time capsule thing within Mulholland Drive is the the whole sequence with the hitman who accidentally keeps killing people because he, you know, is he fires his gun and the bullet keeps going through all of the, like, super thin walls of that office building, which feels like in its, like, A, it's obviously, like, something left over from when it was a pilot because that feels like yeah. something that would have had more more importance and impact in future episodes. But also that that feels like such a kind of like lynch trying to do his own version of the kind of like dispassionate distant kind of vaguely ironic thing that was really rampant in in independent cinema at that time kind of post tarantino where everyone was like okay we need to have people say funny quips and some and like have violence, but have a kind of dispassionate tone about it and his his approach is obviously uniquely his and it's not like he's just trying to do what a younger at the time more in vogue filmmaker was doing but there is like that sense where you watch it you can kind of see okay this is a movie that exists within a very specific context as well which also is kind of an interesting thing about uh, about you know movies that you could point to and say they feel like a time capsule is you can look at them and you say oh this movie is embodying a lot of trends and ideas that were maybe happening at the time
1: yeah there's a kind of nostalgia for that there's a nostalgia within that as well like you were saying there ed about an idea or a dream of la so like not only Mm. not only um snapshots of films that are indicative of the time that they were in but the nostalgia that's a projection of that time looking back. I really felt that with Spotlight for some reason, like there was something about watching a film where I thought, oh my God, this is the first time me um, personally can look at this and be like, oh yeah, that's what the late 90s were like. Like that very particular kind of like, even just like the chinos, let alone the AOL billboards like the internet is a new thing right but there's there's something that felt that they were properly living in that time and it didn't feel like a kind of bojack horseman it's the 90s kind of like blaring sign even though it's literally a sign mm. um and i thought that was quite impressive but then you'll see that in a lot of stuff like well richard link later um even Fellini like a lot of kind of looking back and creating times that have this kind of haze of youth about them Mm. you know the times that which directors grew up in sort of memorials have a lot of that steeped in them
0: Mm. and I think with Lynch and I'm not going to sit here and try and psychoanalyze David Lynch because (laughs) better people than I have tried and have no doubt been driven insane by it but I, when you read about his past, you know he he's had such a Midwestern like uh, childhood. I think he like grew up in like like Montana or one of the Dakotas maybe like or, or Idaho. I think he spent some time like he was all very much in the plains area of the com- of the country and like his he has such a reverence for old classic hollywood movies which he clearly grew up with and also were offering this vision of the world to him that was so clearly so presumably alien from what he was experiencing and, and that i think is must at some in some way factor into why he wanted to go into making movies and with mulholland drive even though i wouldn't say necessarily that lynch has ever come across as like a massively cynical person i think like the appeal to him for me is this weird earnestness that is embodied particularly in like the character of, of dale cooper but there is a kind of like an earnestness to him and his genuine like the genuine pleasure he gets in in creating and things like that but mulholland drive really does seem to be the tail end of a period where he had gone through you know he had broken in through making a razorhead and you know had tremendous critical acclaim with uh elephant man kind of had a bit of a misstep with dune but then bounced back and had been on this kind of like real tear of movies that were critically often very successful com- co- uh, commercially did fairly well but then you know he's like made a movie with disney which i think like he I think I assume he's very proud of the the straight story, obviously a a great movie, which is now I think is gonna be on Disney Plus this week in the US. So if anyone uh wants to do what I'm gonna do and just sign up for a free trial to watch the straight story, now's your time. Um yeah, the most stereotypical thing I could I could choose to get Disney Plus for. I think like that he does seem at that point to have become very um disillusioned with Hollywood as an idea and, and that is borne out by the fact that you know they made a pilot of Mulholland Drive and I think at the time if I'm remembering correctly from the um bio his autobiography it was one of those things where one executive greenlit it and it was someone that he liked and then there was a change over at the studio and the new people didn't like what he'd done so they said no um but you can turn it into a film if you like like maybe that is also important like that process of his um Embitterment about the, the the process is kind of like born out in what the film ended up becoming. Like mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to wonder what Mulholland Drive, the TV show, would have ended up as, but it's I I always struggle to imagine that it would have ended up being like the film that we got. Like it had to go through the process of being shunted to the side to become the film that, that it became. Mm-hmm. In terms of cities as well, like like you, like all the examples I could think of were. It involves cities as well, because I think cities are the ones that tend to undergo the greatest change. Like, I grew up in a very small town in in England. I grew up in the town of Market Bosworth, which I think has about 2,000 people, if I remember correct from the last census. It's a teeny tiny place. And if you look at pictures of it from the 60s or from the 20s, it is not that different from what it is now. Like there are more telephone poles and the roads are not cobbled anymore except in the except in the town square but like for the most part it's not a place that has changed all that much whereas if you look at London or Paris or New York or LA these cities that have been the focal point of a lot of film making and film culture for you know most of the last century you do really see these massive changes as huge economic and societal and cultural shifts have occurred and new york for me is probably the one that i gravitate towards the most because and this is not just like la which is kind of is a great city but like There is a certain... Because LA is so kind of like vast and sprawling, it doesn't have the same kind of iconic identity to it that New York does. And also because New York's so compact, particularly Manhattan. Like, Manhattan is so compact and there are so many iconic things seemingly on every corner that... You know, it's very easy to find like dozens of movies from all these different periods that will feature, you know, the Empire State Building in the back of the shot or whatever, and you can kind of see how these things have changed. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons I really like, you know, movies about New York in the 70s and 80s when it was really bad. (laughs) Because New York, I've only been to post Giuliani, post 9 11, um, after it went through this kind of its own kind of huge seismic change that led to manhattan becoming you know what people think of as like a playground for the rich and a lot of the seedier elements of it um and i say that in the nicest possible way being pushed to the side so that's why something like taxi driver i I really love because you do really get this vision of what everyone thought new york was in 1976 which was hell on earth (laughs) or yeah um early Jim Jarmusch movies like Permanent Vacation or Stranger Than Fiction which are really about in a major way kind of capturing the feeling of being dirt poor, broke, hanging out with artists in I think like the meatpacking district or something like some part of New York that at the time had just been allowed to rot and was like genuinely very dangerous to (laughs) live in and the sort of place where you could run the risk of being stabbed if you left your door, uh, left your um apartment and now like you can walk down it uh, at any time of day well certainly now but (laughs) when there's not a pandemic on you can walk around those parts of the city and it's like oh look at this nice cafe look at this nice bistro and look at the apple store yeah Yeah. like that it's those other kind of movies i really gravitate to because they are capturing like a time and a way of life that in that specific city that just doesn't exist anymore and barring calamity is is unlikely to happen again
1: scorsese is the real chronicler of new york i mean thinking to yeah i mean gangs of new york but i think the age of innocence i will always bang the drum for that film of course but to to show and i think that's a film that doesn't feel rose tinted no it's it it It's very set in a certain, it's set in a very certain echelon of society. And I feel like Jane Campion probably watched it a lot before she made Bright Star, because Mm. I think Bright Star is a really wonderful film. Like the idea that, you know, oh, you live on Hampstead Heath and that's what it looked like. Or like, this is what London looked like at that time. And there's a hint of how other people might have lived. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Scorsese really covers New York in that way throughout the whole of his career. And Wolf of Wall Street, like picking up at certain times, I was thinking again back to Mean Streets, which I'm not a massive fan of, but someone tweeted like Harvey Keitel in that red lighting in Mean Streets, that's it, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, that totally is it. Like that, that shot does sum up a lot of like the 70s to me and that the early 70s does mean Harvey Keitel in an, a, like a mafia <laughs> sort of gangster movie mm-hmm. drenched in that red in that bar is like, yeah, no, that that kind of cinches it, which is quite a feat, I think, to be able to come up to come up with an idea to to realise characters and to compose a shot that someone can look at and immediately identify <laughs> when and where it mm-hmm. is.
0: Yeah. I think also in terms of the the you know Harvey Keitel being a genuine kind of movie star of the era, I think that is its own kind of time capsule. And also Elliot Gould, who we were talking about earlier with um, the Long Goodbye, like there are certain periods where you could you can really see that the f- notion of what a movie star was completely changed from mm. what it had been and what it would become in the you you know like that that was the whole thing with like when Dustin Hoffman became a star on the back of The Graduate everyone was kind of like that guy like a yeah, guy who yes. just kind of looks really kind of nebbishy and is short and not particularly attractive but he's one of the biggest stars in the world okay fine let's let that happen but like that that is one of the things that is really fascinating about that period is like not only where you, did you have people who became stars who were not didn't fit the mold of of what hollywood had been doing for a long time but also you know compare when you look back on it now the kinds of movies that were huge huge hits feel so alien to the kind of movies that are massive hits these days and and he, you don't even have to go back to the 70s like one of the movies i had on my list as an example of a movie that now feels so completely alien in terms of how huge and successful it was is Jerry Maguire, which Mm. was an original R-rated studio kind of comedy drama that had no hook to it other than the fact that, you know, it starred Tom Cruise, who was, you know, a big star, but otherwise there was no kind of like high concept thing for you to hang it on and it it grossed $153 million in the US alone as one of the highest-grossing R-rated films ever made, still to this day. And that is one of those things where you think, I really can't see that happening (laughs) um, in the current kind of, like, landscape. It's not something that I think will never happen again, because obviously things ebb and flow in the industry and people go where the money is uh, and they want to be shown the money. But it really does feel like a very distinctly mid 90s moment that only that actor at that time could become it could headline a movie like that to that level of success
1: mm. i think probably what about what about hitch i don't think hitch would have been mm. a film that you could make now and that's not really just to do with Will Smith. I think there's something about like that particular kind of, there's a certain gloss that mm. starts yeah. in about the mid to late 80s and went through to about, I'd argue 2010 was kind of the last we saw of it, that is with rom-coms. And I find something about that cinematography just immediately comforting it's almost like a chemical reaction in Mm. me and I think Hitch has that there's something just so sort of glossy and slick because you don't even notice the cinematography that's not the point the point is Mm. everything looks kind of clear and bright and shiny and it looks like it exists in a world where nobody poos and and there's just but their
0: bathrooms are fantastic
1: exactly it's easy to have a fantastic bathroom if you don't emit any bodily functions into it right <laughs> um yep. so but i think hitch in particular because it shows how will smith was the star he was at that time because it was off the back of like like was hancock around that time as well
0: like that was a few years later because it right? was like 2005
1: yes that was like the real peak i think of will smith sort of doing a variety of leading man stuff because there was I Am Legend and mm-hmm. I Robot. Like, he really raked it in at that time.
0: Pursuit of Happiness as well because there was that famous yeah. run he went on where basically every movie he was in, regardless of genre, made at least a £100 million for oh,
1: well, yeah. that,
0: for a For a good seven or eight years maybe? I think it only ended and hasn't really... Picked up again with seven pounds,
1: yeah. but like,
0: but there was that there was definitely like a sweet spot for him, similar to Cruise in the mid nineties, where you put him in a movie, doesn't matter what the movie is, people are going to see it in droves.
1: Mm, he was so bankable,
0: mm.
1: so bankable yeah. at that time, and probably also
0: Julia Roberts. I think also. You just yeah. talking about the rom coms and the gloss. I feel like. Uh, Pretty Woman kind of felt like a really pivotal pivotal in that period in the sense that it was a rom-com that had that sense of gloss and that warmth to it that also was just a huge hit and immediately like every studio was like what rom-com script do we have that we can put Julia Roberts in Mm -hmm. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned the cinematography as well because I really feel as if that's a really good example if anyone needs to use like the semiotics of cinema cinematography and to like illustrate to people the way in which a movie is shot can tell you what genre it's in i really feel like the 90s yeah. to uh, early mid 2000s rom-com style if you you know that film school thing of showing a movie without any sound or whatever if you show clips from uh, Bride Wars, or <laughs> whatever, yeah. uh, uh, to people without any sign. I was like, okay, what what genre is this? You will be. I feel like most people, without knowing it, would be able to intuit. Oh, this is like a rom com, or this is this. This is certainly a comedy, just because of it has that evenness to it and that real kind of like brightness and gloss and warmth.
1: Oh, for sure, and I think that's something that is down to editing as well. I don't know if it's going I mean, anymore, but there used to be a beautiful like editor's championship league where the the goal was to take one film and edit a trailer in to make it into another genre.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And I will see if I can find it and send you the link to put in the notes. Um, but one year the like unanimous champion was an editor who managed to re-edit The Shining into a soulful sentimental (laughs) rom-com called called shining um and it's incredible because you realize like oh this kind of music and this kind of font even Mm. like you say the semiotics of genre are huge and they're fun to play with and i think some people do manage to cross them over and use them in different ways but the rules are there I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but the rules are there to be broken, but the rules are still there.
0: Mm. And that's also, to, to go back to uh, They Came Together, that's why that movie is such a pleasure for anyone who's watched even a handful of the kind of, that genre of movie is just seeing how well they captured the look and the tone and the editing of it and their understanding of just, like, the structural jokes and the editing and the the production elements of it. Like, there's a joke in it that I always really really enjoy which is such a small thing but there's a sequence where amy polar and paul rudd are they're driving somewhere for the weekend i want to say and there's a shot of a car kind of like driving along the road and they're talking and it's very clearly ADR'd to make you think, Oh, yeah. this is something recorded later and they're having a conversation and then the car pulls across the screen and you see that actually no, they're just stood there and their car is broken down and I think Amy Polar is changing the tire or something. And it's just a really funny quick gag about the the way in which those kind of expositional scenes in those movies are constructed, which I think is just like so clever and a real sign sign of how David Wayne and Michael Showalter really do understand the way in which, like, a parody can encompass every element of a work, and that includes like really digging down into the weird, small nitty-gritty of these like editing tricks that people don't really notice unless they're really looking for them.
1: And this is something that spoofs do so beautifully is that they use humor to illuminate tropes,
0: Mm, and I think,
1: and I think in a way that makes you embrace them and enjoy them because that's <clears> what um of course the greatest film of the past decade that you and I champion ed is um popstar never stop never stopping yep the uh, the masterpiece it is that uses and it's not like the most established genre but again that was something that was was really like big around in the lead up to that film being made which was the kind of new haggy uh, hagiographic Am I pronouncing that right? Mm. Possibly. Um, yeah. Con concert movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Katy Perry and and Justin Bieber, but they absolutely nail it, and then find lots of avenues for um, fun as well. But that's I think that's an amazing way as a film student is if you watch spoofs of things. I think you you kind of pick up the tropes quicker mm-hmm. because the the filmmakers of the spoof have already done so much work for you in watching all of the primary sources <laughs> and finding like. humor in it and so much of humor is subverting expectation but if it's subverted then you get the expectation as well all in one um so you learn it's quite it's um succinct in how it gets all of the information across i just i'm such a spoof fan sorry
0: (laughs) i think uh that's also very true of um walk hard which is does the thing of of um spoofs where they're kind of pointing out in dialogue what some of these um tropes are, like, you know, having the dad just constantly say the wrong kid died, or um You know, like all these things pointing out pointing out his descent into using all the drugs and the kind of like crowbar in appearances by, you know, quote unquote Elvis and quote unquote the Beatles and all this sort of stuff. But the thing about it that I've always really appreciated is just how well it captures the look and feel of a kind of high end hollywood oscar bait biopic like it has there's a kind of like an a, i don't know an oakiness to it like a real kind of sense of like yes we're filming this in a way that feels very important and very much like oh this is like a. Uh, Uh, this is you know a real person and we're playing due respect which is why it's hilarious when like a a child gets chopped in half with a machete (laughs) (laughs) because that's not a thing that's meant to happen in a movie that looks like that and has that kind of autumnal quality to it and i think that's uh yeah that that's one of the things i always really appreciated about that movie and why movies like that and popstar are so much better and hot fuzz as well like one of the great examples of a movie just totally aping the visual style of the movies it's it's copying you know with the the just insane number of cuts and you know the spinning up facing <laughs> michael bay kind of revolving around them but now it's in a small uh, village square <laughs> in england um why they're so much better just on a fundamental level than uh, you know your epic movies and date movies because those are like movies where it's it's obvious jokes that aren't particularly funny and there's clearly no effort p- uh, put towards trying to capture the feel of the movies that they are spoofing yeah it helps that those other movies like you know Hoffers and everything are just super funny which you know is a great advantage over the the epic movies of the world but like there's a clear love for the genre being sent up in those movies as well mm. To go back to uh, LA uh, in terms of works that kind of chronicle the change in that city, one of the things I thought was quite interesting in thinking about this subject was TV shows, particularly ones that go on for long enough, kind of become their own time capsules as well, because without you realising it, they're chronicling sort of fashions that are changing at the time, aesthetic changes that are going on at the time, and one of the kind of like the biggest for me, just because it's one of my favourite shows and, and also because, you know, the most recent series just finished airing, is Kirby Enthusiasm. Hey. And as a kind of experiment and as kind of research for this, I decided to rewatch the very first episode of Kirby Enthusiasm. Not the, you know, the special from nineteen ninety nine, which is very good in its own way, but it's is different. Um but, you know, the very first episode, which I didn't realise, has two of the classic curb bits, which is the pants tent the uh, bunching up of the material on his uh, trousers, making it seem like he's got an erection, and him mm. talking to Jeff on the speakerphone and calling his wife Hitler while his uh, while Jeff's parents are listening. <laughs> uh, both of those are in the first episode, and in fact in the first two scenes, which is amazing really. Um, but one of the things I found really interesting in rewatching it was you do notice how different L.A. looks over the course of the 20 years from when those episodes that episode was shot and when the most recent ones are shot particularly any time the show ventures into downtown LA which has gone through this huge uh, you know huge amount of money for redevelopment has gone in there and there's been this like real change in the perception of downtown LA over the course of the last 10-15 years or so Mm -hmm. and In much the same way that it accidentally exonerated someone on a murder charge uh (laughs) curb has kind of accidentally chronicled that as well just in the background um but also in a more abstract sense like it's really interesting seeing how just like the things in larry and cheryl's home now look hopelessly antiquated like their landline phone with the little, which is like super chunky and has the little nub of the aerial on top. His uh, Nokia phone that he has to plug into a thing on his car so that he can get the speakerphone working. Like it is really interesting as a time capsule of, oh, like this is how rich people lived in the year 2000, and it now looks like <laughs> so. It just looks like so rinky-dink compared to the kind of sleek iPhones that everyone is carrying around with them that can do all this sort of stuff. And, you know, just the the idea of someone answering their uh, landline phone in this year is insane. uh, Rinky-dink! I
1: love that. That's so true. And that brings to mind, uh, if we're chatting telly as time capsule, Mm -hmm. uh, the adaptation of Zadie Smith's White Teeth, which... Mm was on years ago and i don't know if it will be brought back but that's beautiful because of course that is a story that follows in particular like the sort of i mean if i wanted to be really like back of novel blow about it the changing phase of contemporary britain and we we followed these characters over various decades and uh but that's kind of amazing seeing from like the 60s through till about uh correct me if i'm wrong ed is it about 90s I think it's about a 30 year span it's from sort of generation to generation
0: yeah so yeah that's yeah it's been a while since i watched it but yeah i'm pretty sure that's about the period
1: yeah but it really and again it's a credit to the production design that it doesn't feel bojack horseman dude do do it's the 70s like if people you know you see a space hopper but it doesn't feel like that kind of establishing shot of like that you'll get with London, for example, now, which is like there's a red bus, there's Big Ben, there's which Paddington rips off beautifully again. London
0: Calling's playing on the soundtrack.
1: Yeah, again, <laughs> like moments of spoof, like we've all we've all done this before. This is why this happens. Mm. But White Teeth, I think, showed a London that I feel a lot of people would recognise. Like if you actually live in London or know it particularly well, it doesn't do that kind of flashy. Here are the tourist spots because it's not a tourist expedition it's actual people's lives in london over that time and i remember thinking yeah this is done really well this shift
0: Mm. yeah absolutely i i think also um weirdly a good series for kind of like chronicling the changes in london is the bond series because Mm. that's that's been going on for so long and even though generally speaking not a huge amount of those movies takes place in london it, it's interesting kind of seeing what elements of it they highlight every time they go there. Like, the one I always go to is... Uh, I want to say The World Is Not Enough is the one that starts with the boat chase that ends up on the Millennium Dome, or the whatever arena is now known as.
1: Yes, Millennium um, Dome, yeah.
0: Which definitely feels like such a moment in time that they really have to highlight that. It's like, oh, this was like a brand new... This was like a brand new monument in the London skyline. We have to maybe pay attention to the fact that the Millennium Dome is here, mm-hmm. and that, that I think you also see that in like the '70s King Kong, where the finale has to take place on the World Trade yeah, Center. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. This is a new thing in New York, and we need to, you know, capture it cinematically in some way. Um, and I feel like those are kind of those are always quite interesting when filmmakers have access to like something that's big in the culture at the time and then you know in the case of Millennium Dome just kind of becomes a thing people forget about because no one really cares that much about you know all of the stories about how much it was costing and what a disaster it was at the time. Now it's just a thing in London that people go to watch Adele play out or whatever
1: Yeah it was such a pinnacle of a certain idea that London and the UK had of itself at that time
0: and that <clears> it
1: and that the role that it plays in that sequence is that it essentially saves James Bond's life.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: Um is quite quite the hubris you could argue as well that in Home Alone when Trump shows up.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, Home
1: Alone 2. Um that again is very very point of play. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that his him just him existing does kind of it really kind of puts an, a weird feeling every time, like a movie uses one of his probably A movie that you know obviously was filmed in the past when he was merely an awful person who didn't have power, um, although you know not the kind of power he has now. I guess he obviously had power over his tenants or whatever. But like I rewatched about a year ago. Um, Ocean's Eleven because it happened to be on Hulu and I thought man I haven't watched that film in ages and it's such a a fun pleasure to watch that movie Mm. but literally the opening scene like the opening 15 minutes has Danny Ocean on a phone With the Trump-like hotel sign just kind of like flashing in the background, (laughs) and it's like it's got this really kind of weird menace to it now, which I don't think at the time it did. I think at the time it's this kind of like you know chintzy, low rent thing to kind of have him silhouetted against the Trump name or whatever. But like now, it's just like looming over all of us as 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 he does in all of our lives daily now, unfortunately.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. also in terms of the the early 2000s i think we kind of touched you you certainly touched on this a little bit with time code but i feel like one of the kind of aesthetically the most kind of like time limited time capsule in a sense like the one where you can most narrowly now most narrow it down to oh these movies were made during this like four or five year period are the really early experiments with digital video yeah those movies if you talk about obviously something like the Blair Witch Project is the the biggest example of this where you take a movie and you use kind of consumer-grade cameras and try and create something that feels kind of raw and real and unsettling or uh, a favorite of, of mine um, Chuck and Buck which is another movie where the subject matter is kind of like so dark that you can't get funding from a studio to make it so you just have to buy cameras and film it yourself um, or um, Spike Lee's Bamboozled, where most of that movie is shot on consumer-grade cameras except for the sequences of the TV show being made, which were all in, like, 35mm and look kind of really beautiful. There's a real sense in those kind of movies where you look at them and you think, these are really going for a rawness that was only really allowed because these, mov- these cameras that people were using were decent but not good enough to kind of get anywhere close to matching the quality of you know actual film but mm. I bet in the years since like digital has become so obviously it's not to the same level of data or whatever and there's like lots of details about why film will always hold more data than than even like 4 or 4K or 8K but um like it's it's gone on so much now that you could ha- it's hard to imagine someone making a movie making a movie that looks like chuck and buck or the blair witch project with consumer grade stuff now because it would all look like super glossy like you know the yeah. kind of like mid-rent mid-level youtubers make
1: yeah that's such a good point like the, you know mumble would be a completely different mm, yeah thing um i was thinking about um sort of on that point rage The Sally Potter film.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: 2009, that now I think was panned at the time. I think Sally must be like kicking back and chuckling a bit now, at least I hope she is, because I think she kind of managed to take the YouTube aesthetic and kind of pinpoint it before it really took off. Like, I think there was something Mm. mildly prophetic about Rage as a film um, and it being like a snapshot of the fashion industry and hysteria around it at that time and again sally potter's mm. i think incredible at capturing a sense of time and place because i think ginger and oh no wait no i'm getting confused No oh, wait ginger and rose ginger and was... rosa yeah yeah i'm not yeah no that's it because jane campion's daughter is in it but it's not jane campion oh, yeah. there we go keep it in that's how i've <laughs> Don't edit that out. Keep it in. Yes, I think Ginger and Rosa is wonderful because it's the time it's Sally Potter. Again, it's like one of the few like female filmmakers looking back Mm. at their childhood that we have. And, you know, the kind of her family of like, you know, women who are single by choice and queer men and kind of radical lefty stuff. Um, that kind of atmosphere and that kind of end of world feeling might be an interest to some people to watch right now, I don't know Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah I think she's really brilliant at like capturing that and Yes as well which is a film that I adore and haven't watched Mm. for ages but is manages to be a lot more affecting than what could sound like a very wanky gimmicky premise of that it's all in iambic pentameter but is gorgeous and represents London and I think they shoot the Cuban bits in Spain, I can't remember but that feels, that's a very particular kind of snapshot of London as well See, I think Sally Potter actually I've figured out through this conversation Ed is one of my favourite filmmakers purely in sense of capturing a particular juncture of time and place
0: mm, I think yes as well is it, it is a very interesting example of someone really trying to come to terms with the world like post 9 11 post iraq war Mm -hmm. of really trying to it's like a movie that feels very kind of like of the bush era but not like overtly it's more just trying to get to to grips with the undercurrents of what's going on the the rage and the hate that's kind of going out there and trying to meet it with something else i think you could also say like spike lee's the 25th hour kind of Mm for that as well like a movie that yeah with the book i think the book came out in like 99 or something so it it is written from the perspective of someone you know growing up in new york and, and working in new york and having this whole thing of like writing from that particular perspective before you know this terrible terrible thing has happened but the movie is like suffused with that feeling of unease and like the dread that's just hanging over everyone and you know spike lee famously has you know that great moment where i want to say barry pepper and philip seymour hoffman are having a talk and the camera kind of like pause and you can see that they're standing at a mirror that overlooks ground zero and like it's a real great example of someone in a way that doesn't at all feel exploitative but really just kind of like literally looking at the scar at the heart of the city that he grew up in and trying to illustrate through images like what that moment feels like and uh yeah that's why that's why the 25th hour is one of the one of the great movies uh of the last 20 years i think mm. so we end this episode we end all episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: i have got the Brene brown podcast unlocking us mm. which is reasonably new Um, But the most recent episode is a really timely and helpful kind of guide in in how to, just your internal chit chat with all this global pandemic stuff going on. I, and I mean, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. I think her, not only is her research like some of the most vitally important in sociology and just in many disciplines um, for years and years, um, she manages to get stuff across with such humor and grace and personality. Um, so Unlocking Us, the Brene Brown Podcast.
0: Cool. I am going to recommend a video essay on YouTube by uh, Ollie Thorne, also known as Philosophy Tube, ah. called, uh, called Artists and Fandoms, which uh, is his most recent video in which he starts off talking about the Star Wars The Last Jedi and the fan reaction to it and also the... Rise of Skywalker and the subsequent reaction to that, then uh, pivots into talking about you know a sense of gatekeeping around Shakespeare and the questions of how or Shakespeare is meant to be played, ultimately making it uh, bringing it into his own experiences with his fan base because he's you know fairly popular at this point and has lots of people who watch his work and interact with it and you know it's it's a really fascinating journey through the meaning of fandom the kind of the positive elements of it the of the, the the many negative elements <laughs> of it um and i i personally found it to be very uh very compellingly told and it's really uh interesting that it came out now because there are several bits of it where usually his his videos are him you know performing as a character in a space or in front of a screen or whatever uh this one there's a few sequences where he is shot on location you know outside of the globe theater and another bit where he's on broadway and he's talking about uh, a david mammoth play and i couldn't help but think like why are all these people here <laughs> <laughs> why are they so close <laughs> but it's it's very good there'll be a link in the description for anyone who wants to check it out uh, that is uh, artists and fandoms by philosophy tube if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review and recommend to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: Uh, it's goodbye from me.